Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Good morning. I'm going to start this morning with uh, three questions for us. And I don't want you to answer these questions out loud. I don't want you to raise your hand. We're not going to do a survey. But I just want to kind of let three questions just sort of sit in the back of our minds uh, over the course of this service. They are these. Are Christians permitted to eat bacon? Are Christians permitted to drink yingling? Or any other kind of beer if you're against yingling? Are Christians permitted to drink yingling? Or alcohol or wine or anything like that? And are Christians permitted to read and enjoy Harry Potter? All right, I know some of you guys, I said, don't answer out loud. I don't want to know. Just let me sit in the back of our minds. I've heard these questions in some shape or form over the course of my ministry. Some of, the, some of the answers to these questions, for some of you, feel like they're black and white. Maybe for one out of three, it's like, this is a black and white. There's no question about this. Maybe that's how you are for all three. Some of you have maybe asked these questions. Some of you, these questions have never even occurred to you. Some of you maybe are like, maybe I do have a question about that, but I've never really thought about it till now. But if you're actually reading through 1 Corinthians, you find that Paul maybe doesn't address these questions specifically. But what he does say is that if you're asking these kinds of questions, which we are often, and there's a lot of other questions I could add, if we're asking these kind of questions about what we're permitted to do and what we're not, we're actually asking the wrong question. This morning, we're continuing a series called Elephants in the Room. And in this series, what we're doing is we're having a series of uncomfortable conversations following the lead of a letter called 1 Corinthians. Paul was a, was a missionary or a church planner or a church starter, that's in a way that you could say it, who started churches all over the Mediterranean. And he started a church in the city of Corinth. And after he had started the church, kind of left it with some leaders, he left. And then he heard about from a woman named Chloe that they were having a lot of problems. And so what he does is he writes them a letter, and he's written them a few letters, writes them a letter to address some of the problems, some of the things that are happening in the life of the church that nobody's addressing, nobody's talking about. And you might call those elephants in the church. And often as a church, when we have an elephant in the room, when there's something that we don't want to talk about, what we end up doing is we end up avoiding the conversation. And often we think that's the way of protecting community. Let's just not have a conversation about it. Let's just not talk about it. But what we find over and over, and really what we're trying to to do in this entire series is remind us as a church that Um, The way to community is not in avoiding uncomfortable conversations, but in having them and in engaging them um, together in a peaceful manner. And ultimately, community will come out on the other side of those. And so we've addressed a few of the elephants in Corinth and tried to see how they are in our own church as well. The first one was non-discipleship, where we talked about just spiritual immaturity. Then we talked about divisions and conflict. We talked about sexuality, then marriage and divorce, and then singleness last week. And this week, though, what we're going to talk about is this word freedom. And often when we hear that word, we think about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We think of a very American definition of freedom, which plays into it. But specifically what we're talking about today is what do you do when there's something that the gospel allows you to do, but maybe there are certain situations where you shouldn't do that thing for the sake of somebody else? It's a complex question, but what about those things where you have the freedom to do something in the gospel? You're permitted to do this thing, but there might be certain situations where For the sake of other people in the room, you might not actually partake in that thing you're allowed to do. And what I think we're going to find is that the answer to the questions that I asked at the beginning are not as clear-cut as we like them to be. 
but that they're very situational answers in a lot of ways. And so what we're going to do is we're going to explore kind of a framework for addressing that that Paul has, and he uses something called um, meat sacrifice to idols to get here. And then we're going to come back to those questions at the end. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. I also have it on the screen. And if you're in the back and you don't have a Bible, I give you permission to get out your phone, look it up online at BibleGateway.com, or you can download an app called YouVersion, um, and you could read along with us. But we're going to be in the New International Version, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 13, which is in the New Testament. And this is part of a longer argument that Paul is making in chapter 8, 9, and 10, but I'll leave 9 and 10 for your own personal Bible study. And we're going to focus just on what the argument that he kind of, the self-enclosed argument of chapter 8. So we're in chapter 8, verse 1. Here's what Paul is writing. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrifice to idols. We know that an idol is nothing in all, at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled." But food does not bring us near to God, and we are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Let's pray. Father, we know that none of us are here by accident this morning. And we know that even when we we read about things in Scripture that seem so far removed from the 21st century and from our current problems and situations, that even there, your word is living and active. That even there, Jesus, you rise up from the word and you meet us, you comfort us, you challenge us, you convict us. And we pray that that is true today. That as we read about and study about this situation that this Corinthian church was seeing, that you speak to us from this text. Just as you speak to us when we read it on our own, that you speak to us this morning as we read it together. In your name we pray. Amen. And so at this point, Paul is kind of switching topics. You know, he's been walking through a bunch of different elephants in the room at Corinth. And he's, he's gone through all these things. He spent a lot of time on sexuality and singleness and love and divorce and marriage and all those things. But now he's sort of, sort of grinding the gears a bit. He's sort of switching completely topics. And he goes and he says this, Now about food sacrificed to idols. At this point in the letter, again, he's, he's switching topics, and he's going into this topic that is one of the elephants in Corinth, which for them was the concept of eating meat that had been used and sacrificed in one of the pagan temples in Corinth. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But I have a feeling that for us, this has probably never been one of the questions on our minds. That you're like, you know what? You know, we've been meeting together at our discipleship community. We've been having potlucks. And we just have this constant problem, Austin, that we need you to coach us through. One person keeps bringing 
idol lasagna that they had. They, they got this meat sacrifice to idols and they put it in lasagna. It's really good. We really like it, but it's making some other members of the group uncomfortable. And we could really use your, your counsel us through how, what do we do? Should we eat food sacrificed to idols or not? I have a feeling that this has never been sort of on your mind. And it's easy when we're reading through scripture to kind of get to this and you're like, okay, I think I'm good there. I don't have a lot of questions. We'll just skip to chapter nine and we'll see what else is going on. But I want us to imagine for a second an alternate Bellevue in which an alternate universe, in particular an alternate Bellevue, in which maybe this would make sense to us. I want to imagine in this alternate Bellevue, we're still in the 21st century, but Christianity has never arrived here yet for some reason. And all the places that you see churches are actually just pagan temples. So Christianity hasn't arrived. There are no churches here. And instead of where all the churches are, you just have all these sort of pagan temples kind of all throughout Bellevue. So you have eight to 10. It's live, work, or live idol worship shop. That's sort of what our, our slogan is about here in Bellevue. And so we have all these different temples in Bellevue with all these different gods. And some of us go to the 9 a.m. service at one idol temple. And then other of us go to the 11 a.m. Because we want to make sure all our bases are covered. We listen, then we listen to a podcast of a celebrity idol worship pastor somewhere else just in case so we get all the best stuff we can. That was just for you, Aaron. And so we have all these, 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 these pagan temples that we go to as part of our day-to-day lives. And as part of going to worship, we don't just come and sing together and give money, but we actually come and we bring um, an animal of ours and we sacrifice it. So it could be an elderly cat, it could be a duck, it could be a hamster. I'm just thinking of animals that we have in Bellevue. And you could you go and you sacrifice this as part of your act of worship. And what ends up happening is that one of the benefits of being a priest is that on your lunch break, you know, you have, first of all, you have a good retirement package. And then on your lunch break, you get to eat food, the meat that had been sacrificed. You get to, you know, put whatever barbecue, you you know, on it, you can put whatever sauces you want, and you get to eat this food. But sometimes there's a plethora of of meat that all the priests can't eat. And so that meat is then resold to the local grocery stores and delis, like, you know, Produce Plus or Coons Quality Foods. And so what ends up happening is that, especially at festivals, you have a lot of extra meat floating around. And so people are selling this meat at a discounted rate to Coons Quality Foods. And so Coons decides they're going to keep that in their deli. And so you go to the deli one day and just to get your, your meat and you see salami, you see pastrami, and then you see idol steaks. And that's just kind of a part of your life and your, your, the way you experience the world. When you go to Coons, idol, meat sacrificed to idols is just one of the options that you can purchase. And in fact, it's one of the most discounted options that you can get. Um, because it is, again, already been used and sacrificed, and so it's one of the cheaper meats on the market. Now, altern- Alternative Bellevue is actually just first century Corinth. This is what life was like for somebody living in the first century. Before Paul started any churches there, there were only temples to idols. In fact, there's a travel memoir written in the second century that describes, you know, this is sort of like the um, like the, the Europe backpacker's guide of the Mediterranean. They describe all the different gods that are in Corinth at this time. These are just the temples that are on sort of the main street. You have Dionysus, you have Artemis, you have Bacchus, you have Fortune, Poseidon, Apollo, Aphrodite, Hermes, and then you got a bunch of Zeus's, Zeus, Zeus of the underworld, Zeus of the most high. Got to get your Zeus's straight. And then the Muses as well. And so you have all these temples just lining the street. And whenever there was people worshiping there, they were, again, they were sacrificing animals. And when those animals were sacrificed, the priest could eat some of that meat, but then the rest of the meat was resold to the market. And you could buy the meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And so this question about food sacrificed to idols was a very live question for them. 
They're a network of churches, right, in Corinth. Not just, they're not probably just meeting in one house. There are probably multiple churches spread around Corinth. And they're all having, they're eating together a lot. They're having lots of potlucks, just like we do today. They're eating together a lot. The communion is part of that. And as part of what they're doing, you have these, these Christians that many of them, not many of them, all of them are coming out of paganism, where they had been worshiping idols as a part of their day-to-day existence. And now they've become Christians, but they're still shopping at the same grocery stores. They're still eating the same diets. They're still they're still going to all the same places. They're still living in the same neighborhood. But now there's a very important question that they're asking. Are we permitted to eat food and eat meat that had been sacrificed in worship to idols? Are we permitted to eat that at our potlucks? Or do we have to find something else to eat? Are we allowed to do that? And so for us, that is not a very active question. But for them, it was one of the most pressing questions that was threatening to divide their community over this tiny little issue. And so instead of answering their questions, though, what Paul does for the first three verses is he kind of backs up and he says, you're actually asking the wrong question. And we need to back up and we need to reframe this just a little bit more. And so Paul goes backwards and he says, it's not just about what you're permitted to do. It's not just about what the Bible says, you can do this and you can't do this. But there's actually more to the equation than that. It's not just about what you're allowed to do. It's about what is appropriate given the community of people that you're with. What is appropriate with the people in the room? And so he says this. He says, now about food sacrifice to idols. And he continues. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. Everyone say knowledge. Knowledge. While love, everyone say love. love. While love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. And what he's essentially saying here is this, is that how you love is more important than what you know. What you know is important. It's important to have biblical knowledge, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But in the end, what you know is not the full equation. In the end, we need to be situationally aware, not just informationally aware. We can't just be aware of what the Bible says without being also aware of who is in the room and what makes sense right now. Even though I might be permitted to do one thing according to the scriptures, in this room, maybe I need to reconsider whether or not I should do that given the people that are in the room with me. How you love is ultimately more than what you know. And what he's doing here is he's undermining these information-obsessed Corinthians who are obsessed about what they can do and at all costs, no matter who's in the room. Now, let's look at this passage again. And notice this time I've highlighted all the times he uses some version of the word no. Right? For them, they were having this conversation in Corinth on a purely informational level. What are we allowed to do? What are we not allowed to do? What does the Bible say? What does it not say? Can we or can't we? That was the whole issue for them. If you can, then you always can. If you can't, then you always can't. If the Bible says this, then in every situation, this is what you're allowed to do, no matter what the people that you're with. And so they've having, they're having it on a purely mental level, but not on a social level as well. It's very black and white, and they weren't taking the situation into account. So what Paul does here is, if you see in that second verse, he says, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And to the midst of all this information talk, he throws in this other idea of love, an idea he's going to return to in a dramatic way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we'll get to in a few weeks. But for Paul, there's a difference between knowledge and love and knowledge without love. And what he wants to get us is to a place where we have both knowledge and love. Let me put two equations out there, kind of based on this scripture. The first is knowledge without love. And for Paul, what that leads to is puffed up individuals. 
For Paul, if we have a church of people who are very aware of what they're permitted to do in light of the gospel, who are having insane amounts of Bible studies, who are really knowledgeable, who could pass a pop quiz on anything that they're allowed to do on the basis of scripture, but they aren't also developing their capacity to love and be situationally aware of the people they're sharing a room with or sharing a table with, then what you end up with is instead of a community that's built up, you have individuals who are puffed up. The image there is this image of balloons. You know, I didn't have balloons in that day, but that's an image that we could think of. You can't build a building with balloons. Balloons just bump into each other until they slowly start to lose helium. And you just have a church full of individual balloons who are unable to be built up together. So what Paul contrasts that with, he says, okay, that's knowledge only without any love. But I want a church that has both knowledge and love. And so he offers this equation instead. He says, knowledge plus love, though, equals built up community. So if knowledge without love equals puffed up individuals, knowledge plus love equals built up communities. If we have a community of people that are seeking to grow in their biblical knowledge, what's permitted by the gospel? What are we, what are we allowed to do now in the gospel? And at the same time as working on their situational awareness is asking, given my social situation, given the people I'm sharing a table with, given the people in the room, what makes sense and what is loving, what you'll end up with is a built-up community. If the first image is one of balloons, the second image is one of brick and mortar. You can't build a house with balloons, but with knowledge and love, brick and mortar, you can actually begin to build something together. And that's what Paul is trying to get the church to be. Not just balloons that bounce off each other, but bricks that work together. And for that, you need knowledge and love. So for Paul, the right question is never simply, are we permitted to do this or not? And in this case, are we permitted to eat food sacrificed to idols or not? Are we permitted to bring idol wedding soup to our potlucks or not? That was for you, Debbie. That was just for you. She makes great wedding soup, not with idol meat, anyone. But rather, what is most loving for the whole community? What makes sense given the people that are around me, especially in the case of first century Corinth, given the fact that many of them are new Christians fresh out of idol worship and fresh out of paganism? And so with this basic principle in mind that we want knowledge and love, not just one or the other, knowledge and love, what Paul does is he goes back to the issue of food sacrifice to idols. And he gives us sort of a four-part argument where he walks us through what does this look like in the specific case of food sacrifice to idols. And if you can understand it with food sacrifice to idols, maybe you can begin to apply it to other things. So here's how the argument works that he kind of goes to in the next part in 1 Corinthians 8, 4. The first part, he says, is here's what we know. Here's what we know. And this is what he does. And so he's doing a case study on food sacrifice to idols. And here's what he does first. He says, so then, about feet eating food sacrifice to idols. Here's what we know. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. In other words, idols don't exist. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, for indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one, one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. What Paul is doing here is he's just saying, here's what we know. Let's take the case of food sacrifice to idols. We know that these idols aren't real. We know that they aren't representing any actual gods. We know that you don't have to worry that if you eat the meat sacrificed to this God, you don't have to feel like if you don't worship that God, then that God's going to take vengeance on you because you ate his meat but didn't worship him. You don't have to worry about that because we know that those gods don't exist. And so he's saying, technically, it's okay 
to eat food sacrificed to idols. Because idols aren't real, and God has been definitively, the one God, there's one God, and he's been definitively revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. So by eating meat sacrificed to idols, you're not somehow participating in idol worship. You don't have to worry that the gods are going to get you because you ate their meat but didn't worship them. And so for them, for what Paul is saying is that idol meat and deli meat are really the same thing. You don't have to worry. You're okay. And some of you are like, oh, thank God. I was really worried about that. I know we're going to get to the things that you guys are worried about, I promise. But he says, again, idol meat is just deli meat. They're the same thing. And for the Corinthians, this was the end of the argument. We know this. We get this. Therefore, we're good because we're allowed to eat this idol meat. But for Paul, it's step one of four. And so he goes on to step two. He says, here's what we know, but step two, not everybody knows what we know. Not everybody's on the same page. Not everybody is there in their conscience just yet. And he says this. He says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. So here's what we know, but not everybody knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God, and we are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. And so for Paul, what he's saying is, look, in your community, there are new, or what he calls weak believers, who maybe are aware in their heads that idols don't exist because they've been coming to church and they've learned now there's only one true God. They know this. But somehow, because they've grown up worshiping idols their whole lives, there's a part of them that's still weak. There's a part of them that still feels when they're eating this food, they're somehow participating in the worship of these idols. And when they look around and see other Christians eating, they think that's what's happening that somehow we're worshiping these idols again. They know it in their heads, but they still don't feel it in their hearts, or what Paul says, consciences. For them, idol meat wasn't just deli meat. It was actually participating in the worship of these gods that they had just left as part of their former way of life. And so at this point, again, the Corinthians might say, well, let's just teach them better. Let's just make it more clear to them that these idols don't exist. But he's saying, look, more information isn't going to make a difference. You keep giving it to them. You keep teaching them. But in their hearts, they're still not there yet. And so he goes on to part three of the argument. And here's what happens. He says, here's what we know. And this sounds like a riddle, but it's not. Here's what we know. Not everyone knows what we know. Okay, so we've been there. And then part three, what we know can actually wreck those who don't know what we know. It can wreck their faith and completely destroy them if we aren't careful. So that's what he says next in this next section. He says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, your right to eat food sacrificed to idols, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. And when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. He's saying that what we know can actually wreck those who don't know what we know. He uses one of his favorite phrases here. He uses the phrase stumbling block to describe the effect. I want you to imagine you're, you're attending a track meet, you know, maybe for your son or for your daughter. And you're at this track meet and you're, you're, your son or daughter is running along really well. They're, you know, second place. They're catching up on first place. And they're looking at you. They're real proud. They're waving. And then all of a sudden, somebody throws a huge boulder into their lane. And they, just, they just, just completely run into it. They get you know, a huge fat lip. They break their arm as they hit this, this, this boulder that has been thrown in front of them while they were running toward the finish line. 
Paul takes that image to say this is what can happen to these new believers, to these people with weak consciences, if we aren't careful how we behave around them. Even if you're allowed to do something, what ends up happening sometimes is what you do becomes a stumbling block for this person who's still new at this and who still has a weak conscience. And so how this works in verse, chapter 8, verse 10, basically what he's saying here is that if a weak Christian shows up at one of your potlucks, so let's say a discipleship community dinner, and he shows up with a bag of chips and a two-liter, because that's what you do when you're new, and you, you show up with these things, and you see everybody else has brought these amazing meat dishes. They've brought, like I said, idle wedding soup. They've brought idle steaks. They've brought idle ribs. Some of you are like, this sounds really good. Can we do this after church? They bring in all these idle meats and all these idle meat-based dishes to this meal. And this new Christian whose conscience is weak, and all these, other new, all these other Christians are eating this, they're just fine. Look, we know idols aren't real. We know we're not participating in worship. We don't have to worry about these other gods anymore. But this new person whose conscience is still weak, who grew up worshiping idols, and who still feels it in their bones a little bit, when they see these Christians doing this, it leads them back into worshiping idols again. Because they think that's what's happening here. So while one set of Christians is eating it without worshiping idols, this other person starts to slip back into they're old patterns of idolatry again, without anybody know, knowing that. For you, it's just meat. But for them, it's leading them right back into worship of idols because it's still associated with idols and it's what they're accustomed to. And so there are two consequences of this. The first is he says that you might destroy that person's faith. He says, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ laid down his life is destroyed because you couldn't resist idol lasagna for one week. And then he says, when you sin against them, so that's the first, it wrecks their faith and they might never recover. The very person that you worked so hard to pull out of paganism. The second thing, though, is when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you actually sin against Christ. Because his brothers and sisters were actually, in some way, this is how Christ is present here in this community, is through one another. And we actually sin against Christ himself when we lead another person into sin or we cause them to stumble. So what we know can actually wreck those who don't know what we know. Which brings us to our therefore, our final point here. He says this. He says sometimes, so let's walk through it. Here's what we know. We know idols are not real. Not everyone knows what we know. Some people still feel it in their bones and they still feel like they're worshiping idols. What we know can wreck those who don't know what we know. So when they see us doing that and they eat that, they're actually going back into idol worship. In part four then, sometimes love means letting go of what we know. Sometimes love means for the sake of a brother or sister in the room, actually not doing the thing that we're permitted to do in light of the gospel. He's saying that it's better to just get meat somewhere else or just eat meat in the privacy of your own homes or not eat meat at all, in this case, if it means saving that person from falling back into the path of hell. Here's another way we could summarize it. Or he says this, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I won't cause them to fall. Here's another way we could put that. It doesn't hurt you to let go. It didn't hurt the Corinthians at all to just find another diet, to find another thing to eat at their potlucks. But it might hurt them, the new believers, the people with weak consciences, to hold on. It doesn't hurt you to let go, but it might hurt them to hold on. Here's how Kenneth Bailey says it in his book, Paul Through Mediterranean Eyes. He says, as an act of love, Paul urges his readers to refrain from opening the way back to idol worship for those who do not emotionally feel what their heads are telling them. Even though these people know that idols aren't real, there's something in them that still emotionally feels that they are. And these Christians, by eating idol meat, are actually leading these other people back into idol worship. And so bringing it back, here's the principle underlining all of that. is how you love is ultimately more important than what you know. 
You need both of those things. It's not enough to just know what you're permitted to do. You have to know the people you're with in the room and ask, am I permitted to do that here, in this place, in this room, with these people? And for the next couple of chapters, what Paul does in chapter 9 and chapter 10 is he keeps working out this same principle again and again. He works it out and he talks about why he's not married. He talks about why he doesn't take a salary. He talks about what to do when you're invited into the home of an unbeliever. He adds more nuances. He creates more hypothetical situations to kind of tackle this issue. He talks about what happens when you're cross-culturally, maybe if you're on a short-term mission trip to the Dominican Republic, those kinds of things. And he works through all of these issues, which we don't have time to get into today. But what I want us to do is to consider this principle, consider that argument we just walked through, and go back to those original questions that maybe we ask here and there in our own church. Now, when you're reading the Bible, one of the things you have to do, so when, if you're in a Bible study or you're opening the Bible by yourself, or you're in a discipleship community, or you're just listening to a sermon, one of the things we have to do is when we open the Word of God, we first have to ask, what does this mean to the first people that would have read it? So if you're a first century Corinthian, what did this mean to them? Then, after we sort of get that idea, we extract some principles like this, then we get to walk across what you might call a bridge to the 21st century, and you get to say, what does that mean for us? What does it look like today? And if there's any text in the Bible where I've seen people cross that bridge badly, it's this one. This is a text where people get wrong all the time, where I have to say in my own preaching, I feel like I've crossed this bridge poorly in my own life. And there are other ones that are very easy to cross the bridge, like singleness last week. It's very easy to cross the bridge from the first century to the 21st century. But for this one, worshiping or eating food sacrificed to idols can be a little bit complex. But we're going to try. So I want to go back to those original three questions that I answered. And I'm going to just tell you three things that I think, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to tell you three things that I think the Bible permits you to do. Some of you are going to start cheering. Eat bacon, drink English, and read Harry Potter. I'm pretty sure I can make a case for how the Bible, I think, permits all of those things. Some of you are like, that's literally my dating profile right now. <laughs> you think of The Office where Dwight was like, Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. Yours is like bacon, yingling, Harry Potter. That's me all day. Some of you are going to take a picture of that right now and be like, that's what I got out of this sermon. <laughs> Please don't. There's going to be, this is part one of the argument that we're making. And so I can make a case, I think, from Scripture for each of these. For example, bacon. Most of you are probably not asking questions about that, unless you're a vegetarian. But in the first century, this was a hot issue. This was very live for them. And as people were coming out of Judaism, which prohibited partaking in pork, it was a very interesting question. Can we have bacon at our potlucks? And the, again, but one of the things that Paul makes clear and Jesus makes clear is that all food is now open and available, and you can eat bacon and not have to feel bad about it. And that's one of, the, one of the benefits of Christianity. The second thing, though, on drinking yingling or beer or alcohol. One of the things that the Bible is clear on is that alcohol in and of itself is not sinful. While drunkenness or excessive drinking or drinking that leads to patterns of sin or loss of self-control are actually prohibited. Drinking in and of itself is not. Even Jesus drank wine. And contrary to popular, popular belief, it did not turn into grape juice in his mouth. So there's... He, and at one point, he turned at a wedding, he turned water into the best wine at the wedding after everybody was already drunk. And so this is, Jesus drank wine. Again, I think a pretty good case from scripture can be made that drinking in and of itself, alcohol in and of itself is not a bad thing. Now, the third one on Harry Potter as well. This was way more important to people like 10 years ago than it is today, but I think it's worth still addressing. That while the Bible prohibits, some of you are like, I don't even know what Harry Potter is. That's fine. Just forget it. This is for everybody else. And while the Bible prohibits witchcraft, it does not prohibit the writing and reading of novels that leverage a fantasy world 
like the same way that Chronicles of Narnia does, Narnia, or Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth, leverages a fantasy world to communicate truths about our own world, even if that world uses what you might call magic. Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings do the same thing, but often we don't have the same problems with those. And so I, would, I think I could, some of you are going to stop me after service and be like, I can give you 18 reasons why number two or number three is wrong or number one or whatever. That's fine. Well, what I want to say is whether or not we can agree on that, this still isn't the most important question. This still isn't the thing that we're really trying to get at today. It's not the point we're trying to make. What we have to remember is that it's not enough to just know what we're allowed to do. It's not enough to leave this sermon and be like, Austin said these three things, so I'm good to go. It's not enough to know what we're allowed to do. It's asking, with what we know, what is best for the flourishing of life and community? What does it look like when we're in the room with other people? Not just in the privacy of our own homes, but what, what happens when we're in the room with other people, public gatherings of the church. So what I want us to do now is consider three maybe situations that might destabilize these. You know, for most of us, I think eating bacon is a, is a no-brainer. But I want you to say now, let's say that a couple years from now, we plant a church in a primarily Jewish or primarily Muslim neighborhood. Um, or maybe we just have a discipleship community that decides that's where they want to be. And as part of that, so some, some former Muslims and some, some, um, some people are coming out of Judaism into Christianity. And so this, this new community is full of former Jews and former Muslims who are coming into the life of the community together. And, but what's happening is that for them, they've grown up knowing that bacon was on the no-no list. It was something you weren't allowed to eat, and they still feel that in their bones. But then they show up at our potlucks, and there's bacon on the green beans, there's bacon on the mashed potatoes, there's bacon on the burgers, there's bacon everywhere. There's all kinds of bacon. There's bacon, deep-fried bacon. Bacon is everywhere. It's flowing at your discipleship community. And for these people who have grown up accustomed to thinking that this is something that's sinful— Maybe in that situation, could it be loving to that community, as hard as this is, to say no to bacon for the sake of the gospel? Is it possible? Are we willing to do that? If we're not willing to do that, we might have a bacon idolatry problem, which is a whole other issue. But are we willing to say no for the sake of the gospel? Or consider this situation with alcohol. What if in our church, and this is actually not that far from us, what if in our church or in a discipleship community, someone who is prone to patterns of drunkenness, that is excessive drinking and loss of self-control, joins into the life of our church or discipleship community? And they see that we have no problem with drinking. It's not a problem for us. You know, everybody seems to make this just a normal part of their life. It's just another drink that's available to us. Because we know, we listened to one sermon Austin gave one time, and we know it's permitted by Scripture and that we're allowed to do this. But they don't know that you're drinking it in a way that's not leading to drunkenness. That you're drinking it in a moderate way rather than an excessive way. And so when they see you drinking, they see it as a green light for them drinking excessively. Now, you, you know, as part of discipleship, you say, look, that's not okay. Here's how we're drinking. Here's how you're drinking. So you give them that knowledge. But still, something within them, every single time they drink and they are in a room with you guys drinking, they can't drink moderately. And they find themselves drinking excessively every single time that they drink with you. In that situation, could the loving thing to do be to actually abstain from alcohol when that person is in the room with you guys for the sake of the gospel? I'm not saying as soon as that person leaves, it's like, break out the keg. Here we go. And he's gone. But again, this question of what's appropriate with the people that we're with, we have to learn to be thoughtful and careful as Christians. Or what about reading Harry Potter? What if in the not-so-distant future, someone in our church begins to be really effective at reaching former witches and other practitioners of witchcraft. People who are walking out of this kind of lifestyle, which, by the way, is becoming way more common than you'd believe. 
and people are walking out of that life. But at our church, though, people are always talking about how they love Harry Potter. It's always, we're always talking about Harry Potter. We're having Harry Potter reading groups all the time. I'm saying we have these. We're always, I'm referencing Harry Potter, Harry Potter in my sermons all the time, things like that. But for this person, and as they're listening, as these former witches are listening to it, they have a hard time distinguishing between fantasy world and between reality. Because for them, this was reality. And I know people who are like this. For them, this was reality. And it's not different than real life. It's just part of how, how life works. And, it finds, and they find that when we're reading Harry Potter and we're telling them, you should read this too, it's good for your faith, that it's actually leading them back away from God and back to former practices again. In that situation, could it be loving to maybe just keep Harry Potter references to your own house or maybe just read Harry Potter at your own home or in your own time and maybe not to be so upfront about it in public for the sake of those people who are walking out of witchcraft and idolatry? Um, that's just something to keep in mind. Really, there are a lot more situations that we could talk about. These are just three. I originally had like five, six. I was just cutting them out. These are just some of the situations that we might encounter. And they aren't as clear cut and dry as we'd like them to be. No matter where you fall in these matters, nothing is as clear cut often as we like it to be. In the end, what matters is not just what we know, but how we love the people that we're in the room with. There are times where we're going to get it wrong. I've gotten this wrong in the past, not just on these situations, but on others. But there are but there are other times you can't just completely control somebody else's experience all the time. You'd be a nervous wreck all the time if you were constantly afraid of being a stumbling block. I've known people like that too. You're going to get it wrong. But this point remains at the end. is It doesn't hurt you to let go, but it might hurt them to hold on. And so here's how Paul concludes at the end of his longer argument, at the end of chapter 10. He brings it to here. He says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as you try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they might be saved. That's the guiding principle for how we do this. It's not just about what you know. It's about how we love. In a moment, we're going to come to this table where we break bread and we drink juice, which represents Christ's body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. At this table, we remember the gospel, the good news that Jesus did this that he laid down his life, he laid down his rights for us, just as we sang in that first song from earlier. And as we partake in the gospel, as we remember what Christ has done for us, it frees us as we go back into our everyday lives to be willing to hold our rights loosely and sometimes lay them down for the sake of the same gospel that saved us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for bringing us here today. I know that we're going to be experiencing situations far beyond the three that we talked about today. But I pray that as a church, you make us a thoughtful and careful church, a church that is willing to sacrifice things we love sometimes for the sake of those we love even more. Lord, I pray that we would, you would help us to know and give us wisdom to know what is best given the situation that we're in. Help us to be a church that builds one another up rather than a church full of people who are just puffed up with knowledge. Lord, I know that you're going to lead us and that you're going to guide us in every situation of our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.